Okay. Let's talk about, oh, Ireland. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 5, Episode 4 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. This is where we talk about writing, spies, and writing about spies. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan. Why talk about Ireland, do you ask? There was this peace treaty back in the 1990s, right? And everything's cool now. Yes, the Good Friday Accords, which saw the provisional IRA disarm, and the British Army mostly withdraw, brought an end to an era known in Northern Ireland as the Troubles. Now, I'm not going back some 800 or so years when Henry VIII first occupied Ireland, nor am I going to recount the various unfortunately failed rebellions that occurred over the centuries where the Irish tried to rid their island of the British. Nor will I discuss the Easter Rising in 1916 and the war that happened after, but which ultimately resulted in the Republic of Ireland, minus six counties that remain part of Great Britain to this day, hence the Troubles. You see, to me, that era called the Troubles does stretch back to Henry VIII and to those failed rebellions and to every oppressive British action since. But why is this even something I care about? Well, I have roots in Ireland. I know, I know, almost Every American with a vaguely Irish surname claims to be Irish, especially on St. Patrick's Day. However, I have the DNA test to prove it, and I have stories from my maternal grandmother. I have not yet been able to pinpoint that specific Irish ancestor, I suspect because he or she came to America under some sort of cloud of suspicion and was simply absorbed into the population. I suspect it was either my maternal grandfather or one of his ancestors because of his very Irish last name, Pierce. I only came to appreciate the Irish part of me which was always overwhelmed by my Scots ancestry through my father. But I became aware of and started exploring my Irishness some 30 or so years ago. Now I have a Scottish last name, Duncan, a name I saw everywhere when I visited Scotland some years ago, which was pretty cool. That emphasis on the father's roots is based in primogeniture and patriarchy, of course, 
the father's line was always the most important one. Indeed, in Scotland, if a man had only a daughter, when she married, he'd bribe, excuse me, increase the dowry, if the groom would take the bride's name so the line wouldn't end. On my Scots side, I found a lot of Haldane-Duncan, so I suspect that was a similar arrangement somewhere along the line. All right, so where is this going, and what does it have to do with writing spies and writing about spies? Okay, I've written a spy novel about Northern Ireland and the Troubles, and that novel takes place in 1979, kind of at the height of the Troubles. Indeed, I've always wanted to write something about Ireland and Irish history. I tried a novella a few years ago about leprechauns, but that didn't quite do it for me. For one, it was too cute and comic and hopeful, not things you associate with Irish history. And for this podcast, I was initially going to talk about British espionage in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, but I found that's a complex subject which requires me to do a lot more research. So I'll focus on that topic on a much later episode. The novel I've drafted, it's in its third draft, by the way, of course features my spies, my Fisher and Alexei Bucharin, in one of their earliest operations as partners. So we'll see an occasionally timid Mai who moralizes over her action, and a cruel and uncaring Alexei who will use anyone as a means to his ends. I'm going to get emails and messages. I know. It's okay. We all know he improves with age. Throughout the novel, I give some insight to how people lived in the Troubles, though Kenneth Branagh did it much better in the fabulous movie Belfast. No surprise there. He lived it. I only researched it. But, as usual, I also show how unfairly Catholics were treated by the Protestant minority, the rules and laws that denied Catholics housing, jobs, and the right to vote, as well as the sometimes virulent hatred of the Irish by some British. I also get to include my favorite boogeymen, right-wing nut jobs, the British version. One thing I don't do is romanticize either the IRA or the loyalist groups who engaged in sometimes open warfare with each other. Too much of that has been done. The IRA were terrorists, as were the various loyalist groups. However, the British government focused most of its espionage efforts on the IRA. Namely, they tried infiltration, which didn't work well because it was difficult for British agents to blend with the Northern Irish, Catholic or Protestant. So MI5 switched to recruiting or turning IRA members themselves 
with some success. And again, I'm going to talk more about this in another episode after I do some research. The IRA, particularly during the Troubles, was full-blown paranoid about infiltration, and they dealt harshly with any IRA member they merely suspected of collaborating with the British. Now, these people were called the Disappeared Dozens, if not hundreds of people, the IRA suspected of collusion with Great Britain, who were kidnapped, driven out into the countryside, murdered, and buried as both punishment to them and as an example to others who might consider such so-called treason. Terrorists, remember. Most of those disappeared have never been found, though it's actively being worked on in Ireland through something called the Independent Commission for the Location of Victims' Remains. And this is occurring in both the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. The IRA would often cross the border into the Republic and bury bodies there, thinking they wouldn't be found easily, and apparently that's true. There is an excellent book by Patrick Raiden Keefe about one of these disappeared persons, Jean McConville. And it's a story that both shows the atmosphere and the emotions on both sides. McConville was suspected of being a British informant, even accused of having a transmitter in her apartment and One day in 1972, she was kidnapped off the street and disappeared. Now, the book, which tells the story magnificently, is Say Nothing, a true story of murder and memory in Northern Ireland. I highly recommend it. It's it's a difficult read in that Jean McConville was a mother of 10 who was again, kidnapped and murdered, and her children, for a long time, didn't know what had happened to her. Again, McConville was murdered by the IRA on the suspicion she was an informant to the British, for the British. She disappeared in 1972, was probably killed not long after she was kidnapped, but her disappearance was barely investigated. Her ten children, I think seven of them survived to adulthood, later kept pressing and pressing for an investigation, but that became a long and involved process. In 1999, after the Good Friday Accords, the IRA revealed where her body was, buried in the Republic on a beach. However, a search by the Republic of Ireland police, called the Garda, found nothing. In 2003, after a severe storm eroded an embankment at Shelling Hill Beach in the Republic, some tourists spotted what turned out to be McConville's bones. In 2004, the police in Northern Ireland finally 
confirmed she was murdered. But her killers, her suspected killers, were not arrested until 2014. However, they were eventually released without charge because some of them were old and they could never come up with the evidence and people still, even then, wouldn't talk. Caught up in this investigation was the public face of the Northern Ireland party Sinn Féin, Jerry Adams, who was part of negotiating the Good Friday Accords. He denied any part in McConville's murder, but he was arrested questioned for four days, and released no charge. McConville's surviving children claim now to know who kidnapped and killed their mother, but they have opted to remain quiet so as not to endanger themselves or their families. They continue to lament her loss and that no one has been brought to justice for her murder. So do I. Again, this time, the 1970s, in Northern Ireland, was violent. That violence perpetrated by both the terrorists and the British Army. It's complex and convoluted and disheartening. And in the 1970s, there was no hope that it would ever end. And now, it's commercial time. So again, Prologues, the ebook box set of the reader magnets for my recent 9-11 series, Meeting the Enemy, remains on sale today through January 31st. On February 1st, it'll still be available, but at a higher price. So best to grab it now for only 99 cents. Next month... February, my social media break ends, and to celebrate, I'm putting the four novels that comprise the series Meeting the Enemy on sale for 99 cents each. Again, the ebooks only. So four novels total under $4. They'll be on sale all of February and look for some free days around. President's Day. I'll post the link to prologues in the description of this episode. And commercial over. All right, I promised a reading from prologues last week, and this excerpt is from the final reader magnet in the sequence, Prologue to Rendition which explains why my Fisher, in the concluding novel rendition, is so opposed to enhanced interrogation techniques. The scene I'm going to read takes place after Mai's special test, after Terrell and Alexei brief directorate head Nigel Hume on Mai's performance. Hume as a result, reluctantly concedes to make Mai an operative, but under strict supervision by Alexei. 
And afterwards, Terrell asked her to have a cup of coffee with him. If you recall, Terrell's final torture of Mai was a, quote, game, unquote, of Russian roulette. Terrell sat with his back to the wall and his eyes on the elevator. Seventeen minutes after he'd left the directorate, Mai Fisher approached the hostess and said something to her. The hostess pointed to Terrell, who already had a cup of coffee before him. As Mai approached his table, he stood, in a glance taking in the prim black skirt, hemmed an inch or so above the knee, the off-black hose and black pumps, a white blouse with a charcoal blazer. She took off her sunglasses and looked at him. I don't like having my back to the entrance, she said. He smiled and replied, I'll protect us both. That got him an eye roll, but she sat after taking in all the patrons. They were here midway between the lunch rush and the dinner crowd, so they had some privacy. A waitress appeared when Mai settled in her chair and Terrell resumed his seat. A cup of coffee? The waitress asked Mai. Do you have Earl Grey tea? Mai asked. Yes, but only tea bags. Oh, that's fine. A pot of that and a small pitcher of cream, please. The waitress nodded and went away. Stooping to tea bags, are you? Terrell asked. I'm not here for small talk, Mai said. Oh, you get too much of that from the Ruski, no doubt. What is it you have to tell me? Terrell leaned back in his chair. Okay, no small talk. So, first, first, there's an agenda. Let me do this in a civilized manner. First, your Ruski explained that Nigel was doing this because he didn't trust you. He had some kind of beef with your father back in World War II. So when I returned to Langley, I asked a couple of the old OSS guys still around. All they'd heard was rumors that your father thought Hume was secretly working for the Nazis. Something about several operations your father, Hume, and John Stone were on going south. Stone shared that suspicion, but he and your father couldn't prove it. However, SOE did pull Hume out of the field and put him in some insignificant desk job for the rest of the war. A lot of the former OSS guys and gals were surprised when he was named director at your place. Before Mai could reply, the waitress put the teapot, cup and saucer, and a pitcher of cream before her. As Mai fixed her tea, she spoke. John Stone. She paused in her pouring and looked at Terrell. Did you really know him? Did you kill him? I did know him, but everything I said about him to you during the test was a lie. If I ever find out you did kill him, I'll kill you. I'm stunned. Clear's glass. She stared at him, assessing his truthfulness, he knew, then resumed her tea pouring. John alluded to something he didn't like about Hume and they had a professional relationship only, and a cool one at that. I did wonder why Hume agreed for me to come here for training. Maybe whatever happened in World War II, John held it over him. Maybe. 
So why tell me? Well, you should know what you'll have to deal with until the old bastard retires or dies. That bullshit about the extra probation and performance evaluations was just that. Bullshit. I've only seen a few men or women rival your performance on that test. I've had big, tough guys break in a few hours. You lasted almost four days. You don't need an extra probationary period or extra performance reviews. Hell, you barely need a partner. She drank a good deal of her tea. She was rushing through this, and he understood her discomfort in his company. Look, my, uh, may I call you that? No. His turn to roll his eyes. Fine. Miss Fisher, I prefer Ms. Fine again, Ms. Fisher. I want you to know I got no joy from anything I did to you, but you know it had to be done. Do you understand? You sound like an abuser, apologizing for your abuse, but explaining why it was necessary. Well, that's not what I mean. Neither the Ruski nor I did. I wanted you to know that because I often work with your company. I want the three of us to work well together. Her teacup paused on the way to her mouth and her eyebrows arched skeptically. She put the cup back on the saucer, glanced around and said, What's second on your agenda? Look, I know you're still mad as hell, and deservingly so, at the Iceman. Who? Uh, you're Russian. He's not my Russian. Whatever. I know you're angry with him, but he didn't like what we had to do either. Not enough to stop it from happening. He didn't really have a choice about that. He directed you, told you what to do to me? No, what I did, I came up with. Now, he gave me information to use against you to exploit weaknesses I'm not sure you have, but that would happen in real life. Another thing that would happen in real life is rape. But he wouldn't go for that. I was prepared to go the whole way with the Russian roulette. He put a stop to it. That begs the question. Shoot, he said, grinning. She rolled her eyes again. How many chances did I have left before the bullet? He smiled at her. There was no bullet. I palmed it. But I think that should be our secret. If Hume finds out, well... I wouldn't want to repeat that test. Alexei couldn't see me palm the bullet, though. I had my back to the cameras. Why did you palm the bullet? She asked. Because I wasn't lying when I said I really didn't want to paint the walls with your brains. The Ruski wanted you to face the possibility of your death, knowing that how you reacted to that would be the only thing that would convince Nigel. Again, Alexei put a stop to it because he didn't know there was no bullet. I tell you that because you've, well, obviously cut him off. And a smile, a shrug. He's a friend of mine, and he's so much easier to deal with when he's getting some. She finished her tea. He has plenty of sources. He doesn't need me. I'm not sure about that. Look, I'm Edwin Terrell, Jr. My friend's call me Snake. Why on earth would you call yourself Snake? It's because of a tattoo I have. 
He smiled at her once more. I'll show it to you sometime. Not necessary. Have a nice day, Mr. Terrell. Mai put a five-dollar bill on the table and started to rise. Can I ask a question now? Terrell said. If I answer it, rather depends on the question. I'll preface it by saying I knew of your parents. They were before my time, so I never worked with them. Given what happened to them, why are you doing this? She stood and held up a hand to stop him when he moved to rise. The smile she gifted him made him think she was one of the most beautiful women he'd ever seen, until he realized that smile never reached her eyes. Was I responsible for that, he wondered. If so, what a shame. I was born for this, she said, and left. Okay, that's enough of a read for today. Next month, we'll read some from the four books in Meeting the Enemy. So, talk about weather extremes. Last week, we had single digits and snow. This week, the 50s and 60s and rain. But finally, I can get outside again to do my errands and to keep an eye out for spies. Proceeding has been a production of Unexpected Paths Media. Copyright 2024. All rights reserved. Join us next week for a new episode of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. And of course, Slava Ukraini. <laughs>